Okay, so we are back for our second part of the, the, this, this series called The Process of Psyche, which is really an important part of our, our life, our identity as Jews. And this, um, this is going to be one of our favorites because it is where Machloikas comes from. Machloikas is something that is all very dear and near to us um, in the Jewish community. And so we're trying to, trying to appreciate this in, in fuller context. Um, I'd like to, to start off by, by thanking um, Shelley Dorf and Mail, who, who are sponsoring this morning's learning. Um, together, as we ma mark, just just coming up, um, the second yard site of Mr. Ephraim Grimet, of blessed memory, Ephraim ben Yaakov David, Allah Shalom, um, whose whose presence in our shul was a was a significant and positive contribution to our community. So many times he was always always with us in shul, always such a positive force, and so many of us knew him from before as well, and um, and uh, really appreciated. Him and his family in our, in our shul, he let his memory always be a blessing. Be'ezras Hashem, and he should be a melitz yosha for the mishpacha here. Um, for, all, for all those who are, who are here in, the, in, the, in this space, it should be with continued blessing. Be'ezras Hashem, and he should have an alias neshama. What we're going to try to address this morning are a number of questions, some basic questions. Um, there's so much to talk about, there's so much to learn. Let's try to do it together. Um, Be'ezras Hashem. Um, and so we'll start off with a few questions, and that is like, why are the rabbis always arguing? So the, another question we could ask is, is how can we say that we have common practice if we have so much dispute? This is like a question sometimes you hear people are struggling with faith. They say like everything in Judaism is a dispute. So like how do we know what we're going to do? How do we know anything is right if everything seems to be a, to, to, to be to be a, a, a mach like us? Um, so sometimes we will also say is where did where did it all start? Like what was the first mach like us? Why is mach like us continuing? Why didn't they resolve it? And are there any positive aspects um, of mach like us besides the jokes? Um, so that's that's we have to we have to try and look at some of these ideas. There's so much to, to talk about. Let's start at the very beginning. So we want to start off just to frame it with a, a, a quotation that Rav Cook said in his um, in his book called Shmona Kvatzim, lesser known of his books. It's just such a beautiful idea to frame our learning today. And he says the following. He says, "Be in in the in the the realm of belief and uh, and faith." which are based on ethereal and conceptual ideas. When you live in the realm of ideas, then you're going to have arguments. You find two people who may be completely from one extreme to the other, different from one another. And really, in a deeper look, you'll realize they're actually saying the same thing. You find an argument which is burning to the, the, the seat of heaven. And the reason of Machloikas is simply in language, it's in linguistics. It's external, it's not internal. So whenever we, we, we deal with Machloikas, Rav Cook's sort of called wholesome look and spiritual, we'll call it broad look, is that we're really just quibbling about details. If we really understood each other, we wouldn't be arguing. Let, let, that, let, that, let that be a framework, and that's the way he dealt with people. That's the way he, he diffused situations, is because he didn't take it too seriously. He didn't get caught in externalities or divisions, rather internalities of the, of the integration. That's where it was. So the story goes, it was like one of these days, these complicated days in the, in the Jewish calendar. 
And we, let's say it's Erev Pesach Sheni. You know, one of these days, and it's one of these communities in Eastern Europe, and and, uh, and they and they they come to the discussion about Tachlan. So half the community says we we don't say Tachlan. We never ever said Tachlan. This is not the way to do things. And half the community says we do say Tachlan, and they start having a machlokes. Now, in these things, I always smile to myself because the amount of time it takes to have the dispute. And then to talk about why the rabbi doesn't know what he's talking about and how we did it last year. And then after shul to continue is way longer than the 15 seconds it would have taken to say tachan or not to say tachan in the first place. But nonetheless, it's a matter of principle, of course. And so what happens is, is that the communities are having the great, getting to this great dispute. We always say tachan, we never say tachan. They come over to the rabbi, they say, Rabbi, it says, well, so the one group says, Rabbi, is it our... our, our uh, our minag to, to do tachnun. And the rabbi says, it's not. So the other group says, is it our minag not to do tachnun? He says, it's not. He says, what is our minag? So he says, do you have a mach like us? <laughs> and sometimes that's just the way it is. So let's, let, let's try to dig it back a little bit into, into so every year, the, the same thing happened. So where, where does it come from? So it turns out the first time we talk about dispute in general goes all the way back to my separations. In fact, if you look at the seven days of creation, all the seven days of creation, thank you so much. All the seven days of creation have an um, a appellation, a description which says ki tov. It was good, except for day number two. Why day number two? Day number two, says the Medrash, is because that was the day where there was division. Division between what? Between the upper waters and the lower waters, and therefore when there's division, it's not ketov. It's not good. It's not 100% good. Um, and the Midrash goes on to, so far to say, and if this is a necessary division, and it's not ketov, then unnecessary division, that's definitely not ketov. That's not, not good as well. It's also worthwhile noting it's on day two, where you move from unit, a unit to expansion, right? So the idea of moving from singularity to expansion, that is the place where machlekes, where division comes to be found. It's interesting to note, just as a fascinating, as a fascinating observation, there is division on day one, two. Did you notice that? Right, so there's, there's division between light and dark. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't warrant the removal of Ketov. You know why? Because they're different and it's necessary. It's obvious there's a difference between light and dark. When it comes to water and water, not so obvious. Maybe a different phase, right? This one's gas, this one's, this one's liquid. But it's not so obvious as to why they're so different. That kind of dispute, <laughs> that kind of dispute over there, that warrants the lack of Ketov. And sometimes, so many times in our arguments, our arguments are not black and white. They're not light and dark. They're water and water. They might just be different phases. So it's worthwhile thinking about where the removal of Ketov belongs. That's how far back it goes. It's almost as if what the Midrash is trying to tell us is somehow embedded into the very nature of creation is division. And that's really what, what the Gemara says. The Gemara says that's, that, that is true about human beings. Why? Because it says, um, the, Midrash, the Midrash describes, Just as people's faces are not similar, look at the contours of a face. And I'm sure we've all had that person that they say, oh, we're just an immediate look-alike, and then we find that person and we're not like them at all, right? We look completely different. Well, that, if that's true externally, then in emotional makeup, we're certainly different to people, and therefore we are going to have very different opinions to, to issues. And I would actually say, if you go back to Rav Cook's observation, because the nation of Israel is a nation which lives in the realms of ideas, right? We don't live by the sword. We don't establish empires. We live in the book. We live in the realm of ideas. And the more you live in the realm of ideas, the more there is difference in the ideas that we have. 
we're sophisticated. We're, we're, we, we, we've got sensitivities. We're, we're a, a complex <coughs> people. And because we live in that realm, that's why there's so many differences of opinion. So much so, the, it, these are all famous things, but the Mishnah tells us in Pirkei Avos that, uh, that, the Mishnah tells us, so that there are types of Machlokes which are good and types which are not good. The ones which are for the sake of heaven, ones which are not for the sake of heaven. What's the Machlokes? The Shem Shemaim. So the, the, the uh, by the way, it should be noted that L'Shem Shemaim clearly is a re reference to day two of creation. Right? That should be obvious to us when the mission is talking about that. That's when the first Machlokes happened. But that, that's clearly a, a subtext, but just worthwhile knowing that the mission is not just using this phrase as a throwaway. Um, but what, what's the Machlokes Shi L'Shem Shemaim? So it says Hillel and Shama. We have to think about what that means, because Hillel and Shama are going to be critical players when it comes to Machlokes. But the Machlokes Shi and L'Shem Shemaim is... You notice, by the way, the interesting thing about that machlokes is that there's no second side to the argument. Did you notice that? Right, Moshe, Moshe, Moshe isn't in. It should be Moshe and Korach, right? But Moshe wasn't engaged. It was, it was Korach and his folks. It could have been, as the Chasm Sofer says in this Mishnah, that when you have a machlokes, which is Shalashem Shemaim, all the folks on the one side are actually arguing with each other. They just have a common ill, right? So they have a rebellion. So they just, they, they, they don't even have unity in, in terms of themselves. There's a, there's a lot to talk about here. I'd like to just close this little piece of here with Rabbi Yehuda Ami tells the Rosh Hashiva Gush's observation where he says that whenever people are arguing and they say it's a matter of principle then that machlokes is never going to end because they're going to say I'm arguing for L'Shem Shomayim I'm arguing this is not about me <laughs> this is about the principle and then when you argue about the principle that machlokes never ends it's going to go on for many 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 generations if you're arguing based on principle that's the, the, the we'll call it the opposite of what the mission is saying the phrase Shomayim is a, a, a contraction of a shumayim. So again, the two dimensions. Beautiful. So that fits. The opposites. Well, right? Very and good. Yet they kind of coexist. Beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. So 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 there's, there's so this is this is a little bit of a well, introduction to our arguments in general, and so I, I would say the argument itself is not something that we invented. I think it's a it's a state of being of a human being, is is the fact that we see things differently. I always marvel. Marriage itself is quite an amazing thing. Here you take people who really have grown up with different cultures perspectives, backgrounds, emotional, ba uh, emotional makeups, parents, environments, and you put them together and somehow they're going to try to figure things out. It's a miracle every single time. I mean, it's just it's, uh, how much work needs to go into the fact that, that people can work together and operate on such a level, multiple tiers of partnership, financial partnership, emotional partnership, physical partnership, financial, there's so much going on. And, and, and people manage to work together. Uh, it's, that's, a, that's a pretty significant miracle because there's so much different. There's so much difference between people, and it takes a lot of work. Um, and so this, uh, the same is true about all human beings, is that, is that we, ha we are simply different, and therefore we're going to argue. So they say, okay, so how do we govern societies? Like, how does, how does Torah work exactly? Especially considering that God gave us the Torah. A certain part of the Torah, we have the capacity to manipulate or to change or to develop, as we talked about last week, in terms of the development of Torah Shual Peh. And if that's the case, then you're essentially giving an argumentative creature, right, the ability to argue about these ideas. But they, these ideas are very significant because they affect our day-to-day -day practice. So how does that work precisely? There needs to be a system. And the answer is there is a system. And there was a system. In fact, when we look at dispute, we have to look at it in two completely different phases of Jewish history. The first phase of Jewish history, in fact, there was very little dispute in action. What does that mean in action? That means to say that there was very little dispute as to what the practice was. Why? So the Rambam explains, and this is so critical to our understanding of Judaism, especially those who think that everything's a machlokas, because it isn't. The Rambam says in, in the beginning of Hilchus Mamrim, 
is worthwhile learning and appreciating this, 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 this observation. He says, When there was a, the great basin, the, the upper court, the supreme court essentially, which was the Sanhedrin HaGadol, which operated in the Bezaminash, there was no dispute. What does that mean? So how would it work? Let's say you live in the upper Galilee, right? And you don't know what to do in a certain circumstance. So what do you do? So let's say that he goes to his local basin of how many people would probably be in that basin? Three, right? So the local basin in the upper, upper Galilee, let's say, you know, he went to the Nitofa basin, right? So, and they, and they say, if they, they looked in the books, if there was an if there was a answer, they would tell him. If not, they would say, well, we need to consult. So they would send an emissary, they would uh, send an email to Jerusalem. So there was three botted in Yerushalayim. There was one by Harabayas, there was one by the entrance of the Beis Amish, was smaller, each one of three. If not, then let's say the hardest questions, the Supreme Court cases, right, the real defining vehicle cases which are going to affect the future of all law in Israel, they would come to the, the Supreme Court, to the Sanhedrin, um, and they would ask, If this is part of the Torah Shabbat which was a tradition or a development, right, the Ramam is referring to those two different silos of Torah Shabbat then they would answer if it was known, They would discuss this matter until there was consensus. Or Yamdulaminion, or they'd have to go for to a vote. The Yelhu Akhar Harov, and they would follow the majority opinion. And this is the and that's how Halach was decided. So there, therefore, there could have been a dispute in court, but there was no dispute after court. Because once the court made gave a ruling, that was the ruling, and that decision was rendered for all of the umbrella Bate Dinim across the land of Israel. So therefore, in a future situation which matched this case, they would apply the din which was there. Which means to say, all the dispute that we're talking about in the Gomorrah and Mishnah is post based based in Agarol. So just to be just to be for for sake of intellectual clarity, then so that means to say that for the the, the time of the first base of Megdash. And the second base of Midrash, the majority, of the, the vast majority of the second base of Midrash, there was no dispute between uh, as to the major practices. There may have been sectarianism, so there may have been split off groups from what uh, we'll call mainstream traditional Judaism, as there was the end of the second base of Midrash. So there were all kinds of different factions, but in terms of the Purushim, in terms of traditional Judaism, there was no dispute as to what the practice was. It wasn't that there was even a lacharchila and bidiyevet. Right? Where does where did the terms lacharchila and bidiyevet even come from? That is a later day, a later day application of a dispute, essentially. Right? So when you have two uh, two valid opinions, it's important to know that they are valid opinions of equal standing, and there's a dispute, and the dispute remains unresolved. Then sometimes in halacha that turns into lacharchila and bidiyevet, which is a sort of gray zone. You should really be doing a. If you don't do A, you can rely on B. That means to say there was a dispute, right? That it's usually based on dispute, which is where lechachil and bedyevet. There was no lechachil and bedyevet in the times of Beis Hamikdash. It was you do this, and that's it, because it was voted on. Every dispute was had in court, not in the streets, not at the Shabbos table, and it was voted upon, and that became the halacha. Um, in a certain sense, today I find it uh, interesting is to a, to a large degree, it's interesting to look at Chabad. Because Chabad is very monolithic about its its psak, because they only really have one stream of psak. The Shulchan Aruch Arav, 
And so when it comes to that, there's no disputes that you find sort of in the Mishnah Brura with all kinds of complexities and so on. It's very sort of monolithic and that's it and there's only one way in the, or the highway. That kind of thing, but even to a larger degree, was the way it was. And that's why like, sort of all Chabad do the same thing, right? There's all just the same, say, say, the same course of action. In, in Claudius, well, that's how it used to be for everything. Everything was one course of action um, in terms of this because of the, the base of that goddle. So when we talk about dispute, we're talking about dispute post um, um, Sanhedrin Agadol, which means to say in the last 2,000 years. That sounds like a long time, but there, you have to realize that for 1,000 years before that, it was, there was less dispute in terms of practice. There was, um, there was certainly dispute and argument about so, so political sovereignty. So as an example, in the first place of the kingdom split into two. Right? So that was a dispute. That wasn't a dispute about practice. That was a political, uh, so to speak, egotistical expansion of, uh, um, of, a, of a grab for power. But within the Judean kingdom, it was very clear as to what should be, should be done at times. There were sometimes disputes between the king and the Navi. And it's worthwhile looking at some of those interesting disputes over there, but usually it was a way of resolving those, not for now. Okay, so that, that's, that, that's, in terms of, um, that's in terms of how dispute was resolved at those times. So you say, okay, so then when did Machlaikas, as we see it, because you, you can barely get through any folio, any daf of the Gomorrah without a Machlaikas. So if that's all post-based in Agadol, so what was the first Machlaikas that we can record? And the answer is, is actually it's recorded very clearly in the mission, the first Machlaikas that was preserved, meaning... Machloikas is endemic, we all argue, but Machloikas in terms of normative practice that was preserved and not voted on, which is the earliest one we can add, add to point a finger to? Anybody familiar? Good, excellent, Paul. So, so the first argument has to relate to smicha. Not smicha as we call it, as we did today in terms of rabbinic tradition, but smicha when it comes to a korban. The Machloikas is, and take a look at this, this very beautiful Mishnah. It passes us by, but we don't, we don't realize the significance of this Mishnah in Source 5. The Mishnah says that Yosef ben Yoezer in Chagiga, the second parak, second Mishnah, Yosef ben Yoezer, Amer Shalalismach, Yosef ben Yochanan, Amer Lismach, Yosef ben Prachi, Amer Shalalismach, Nitar Abeli, Amer Lismach, Yosef ben Tabai, Amer Shalalismach, Shamisham ben Shadak, Amer Shalalismach, Shmai ben Amer Lismach, Atalian, Amer Shalalismach, Hillel Menachem, Lai Nechlakus, Hillel Menachem never argued, Yotz Menachem, Nitnas Shamai, so apparently Menachem disappeared, in enters Shamai. And the argument continued. Why are these 10 or 11 people so significant? Why are those names significant to us in this Mishnah? So these are not Tanaim. These are not the sages of the Mishnah. These are pre, these are proto-Tanaim. What does that mean? These are what we call, if you read the first parak of Perak Alba, Zugos. Right? This is when there was centralized Torah leadership in Israel before the Mishnah, the Torah leaders of the Mishnah. This is all pre-destruction of the base of English. These were the leaders of the, of the, of the, uh, of the times. Do anybody know what their titles were, each of these uh, groups of two? The one was the Nasi, who was sitting in the presidium, he was the, the, the president, and the other one was the Av Beistin, the head of the Beistin. They were the two leaders of the community. And this was maintained for five generations. For five generations, the centralized leadership was to the, the Nasi and the Av Beistin. And we read them in Pirkei Avos who the names were. There's Yosei and Yosei, right? Those are the first two. Then there was Yosheb and Prachia and Nitzar Beli. Then there's Yosheb and Taba and Shimon Mechadach, Shemaya of Avtalion and Hillel and Shammai. There were only ten leaders for, uh, throughout the course of these centuries because it went um, from Av Beistin to Av Beistin, Nasi to Nasi, all the way down. He has an interesting thing, which essentially the mission is telling us is there was a Machloikis which was intergenerational at the time of the Sanhedrin. There was a Sanhedrin active over here, and therefore it should have been voted on. It should have been voted on, but it wasn't voted on, and they maintained this Machloikis. Isn't that fascinating? 
This is the first Machlaikas that, uh, that was preserved and not voted down. Yes? Good question, yes. No, so Abi is asking a good question. We, we do see uh, elements of dispute before, and so as yeah. an example, you know, Dara Melech's you know lineage was was a matter of dispute. So Doai Adami felt that Dara Melech was not fit to enjoy the 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 kahal because of his of his matrilineal um, descent. And then and then it was uh, the Gemara tells us that, that that it was settled, and and you know, and Dara Melech began Dara Melech. So I think those those kind of things may be akin, maybe may an expression of. A question of misara, question of tradition, and that was very settled very quickly. So it wasn't a dispute about you know how we derive or how we expand this rule. It was what's the like what, what's actually the truth in this case, and that was settled very uh, very clearly in the base measure at that time. So I think those are, those are more right. Based on So but the, the point is is that there was a uh, I think it was because of miscommunication or an ego and miscommunication in the case of Doyagar Dummy. Um, which was which was later clarified as opposed to two sages arguing about the idea as well. Yes, Yossi. human beings having an argument and deciding who ha- who's in the robe and who's not in the robe, and that is God's will. It's, it's such a very good question. It's, I think this is the most humbling, the humbling divine act is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's willingness to give over the keys to the, the Torah to human beings. It's the most humbling thing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. It, it reflects even the creation of the human being. Where, as Rashi quotes, he, says, he asks the Malachi Asharis about the creation of human beings. Why does Hashem need permission from the Malachi Asharis? He created them. And yet, in this, this incredible you know, sweep of humility, he gives over the, the keys to human beings who are going to quibble, who are going to argue, who are going to deride, who are going to m- misunderstand, who are going, who are going to <laughs> chepper each other. And, um, and ultimately, he gave the rules of how to resolve that as well. Acher Rabbi Nahatos is a divine command. So he wrote that in the Torah, trying to be able to steward us in the right direction. Right? And so one, one has to question mistakes, which we'll do next time, God willing, in the real, realm of authority, is how do we deal with this mistakes in this? But if you think about that from Akash Baruch Hu's perspective, it's the most remarkable. He made us a, a shareholder in the posterity of his Ratzon. That's unbelievable, which means to say that, that throughout the course of history, he trusted us enough with the responsibility of us to make intellectually honest decisions and situations. Sometimes we make mistakes. But to, to, to get to that, that's, by the way, why that whole Machlokas, Rabbi Eliezer and the Chachamim, and Achrei Rabbi Nahatos, Rabbi Eliezer may have been right intellectually and corrected from what we'll call objectives with perspective at the end of the day. That's not the way the rules that Hashem gave us to, to interact with Allah. So we have to see the Tanah Shalachnai situation. It, this to me, I, the, your question to me is just the most, you know, I would say earth-shattering exp- idea of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu trusts us in, that, in this relationship. But let's, let's, let's dig this a little bit deeper over here. Because um, we have this, 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 this moment of, of, so to speak, voting, where everything is voted in and there's one system. And then afterwards we see this expansion of dispute which is unresolved. But there's one dispute which is already preserved all the way through. Why is it preserved all the way through? This is an important thing to be aware of. Many of the later, the later Svarim talk about this. The Mishnah, Eretz Yisrael, and this Mishnah says a very interesting thing. I think it's a, it's a beautiful observation. Is that there's two values at stake. The dispute is about whether you do smicha on Yom Tov. 
That means to say, you bring a carbon to the Beis Mikdash, smicha is when the owner places their hands and says whether it's a carbon which a person needs vidui on, that would be a, a sin offering, or it might not be, it might be a shlamim, it might be a carbon ria, other carbonists brought to the Beis Mikdash, and the, the owner would place their hands in, um, on this carbon before it was shechted. And in a certain sense, the dispute over here in this, in this Mishnah is as to whether a carbon sibur, that means a, a communal offering, requires smicha or not. And from the, the ideological perspective, the argument is such, is how much of a role do we as regular proletariats have in the communal offerings? The Kohanim did everything, right? And the, the, the power of the Kohanim was something which became more and more complicated and dangerous as the second Beis Minash proceeded because they took too much power. They took kingship and priesthood, right, under the Chashmonaim. Right, Yochanan Hurkunus and that very, was a very complicated time um, in, in the second Beis Minash. And this dispute which was happening at the same time was essentially arguing is how much does an individual have the rights in a sacrifice itself. Is a korban simul, do we, do we have hands in that? Do we have a place in that? Or is it completely devoid of us in the Quran and do everything? And it was such a significant, we'll call ideological battle, that they didn't even vote on this. In fact, the, the Margolia Sayom um, argues that the Nasi was not a voting party in the Sanhedrin, but he had veto power. Think about that, what that means for four moments. You think what that means? Is that brilliant to think what this means? So why was the Machlekes preserved? Because the Nasi and our basin were in an argument. He couldn't vote, but he disputed, disputed ideologically, and so it never came to the table. It was sort of the two arms of, uh, 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 wings of halachic development, which were, uh, which were essentially in check with each other, keeping each other in check, and ideologically each side deserved to remain in stasis. What, is, which is, what, what did they do for 2,000 years? That's a great question. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I guess it depended who was, who, who was, who was in charge. That's the, that's the question. Is how does normative practice relate to a dispute? And you see this numerous times as well. Afterwards, there'll be disputes as to what do the tzitz say? What did they do? Right, is, 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 is a question. So there's, there's so many machloikism like this. But let's take this a little further. So the question is, is why did they preserve? Why did machloikism develop to the point that they stopped voting? Why did they not just clarify everything and make it monolithic? And there's one system of practice. And there's no black and, black and white and grays. Make, why did that happen? So there's four, there's four arguments as to this. Many, many. But there's four possibilities as to why this can be. The first is based on the Tosefta, is that when the Sanhedrin ceased to operate, that's of course when Machlokas happened because there was no voting and there was no centralized authority which said this is the way Machlokas should be. So therefore it started burgeoning in such a way that every town had to make their own decisions. And as every town started making their own decisions, dispute arose and great sages of different areas would dispute certain things. So you start seeing this in the first century, the second century common era. You start seeing practices developing in different towns which were different. As an example, Rabbi Eliezer de Mila. Rabbi Yezer felt that, that, that he, based on his halachic principles, that that you could prepare, you could cut down the wood to make the fire, to melt the metal, to make the knife, to do bris on Shabbos, because mila is doche Shabbos. The majority of the Chachamim didn't agree on this. Uh, we were just talking about this beforehand. So what happened? In, in the, the city of Rabbi Yezer, that's where they did what he practiced, but that, so to speak, got phased out. But there was no centralized voting authority that voted on this specifically. So it became more complicated. So the first thing was the, the recession of the Basin Agarol. By the way, the Basin Agarol was not stopped, it stopped itself. The Basin Agarol, the, the Gemara tells us, stopped rendering decisions 40 years prior to the destruction of the Basin Migdash. Which means that, they, and why, the Gemara says, there was so much murder 
going on in society that they stopped operating, which is counterintuitive. You say, no, no, so now they should operate, as, uh, set, set up a satellite, right? You know, have the quick line, the easy pause, the, and, 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 they, and they didn't. They're because they were not simply to keep society into check, they were trying to render God's ratzon in, in, in society. And they felt that in a, such a situation where anarchy was developing, they were no longer going to be necessary, which is fascinating. So they, they removed themselves. Yes? So there are certain, certain concepts that are, should, you would think, would be pretty basic. For example, film. Film, people were wearing film since Martin Torah. Yep. And then all of a sudden, a thousand years ago, there's an argument about what the film are. And what and what what the order departs? So what were people doing for two thousand years? Such a such a good question, Rashi Rabbeinu Tam. What 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 is what is happening with these? There has to have been a practice. It's a very good question, and I, I don't fully appreciate the answer. But there are many questions like this. Most just to, just to clarify this, and just this is where it, it becomes a, a, you know sort of speak broad strokes. People say everything's a dispute. No, no, no. Everything that's written in the tefillin is clear. The shape of the tefillin, the color of the tefillin, everything is clarified. One little detail is of dispute. What actually happened is a is a matter of great uh, discussion, and I don't know the full answer. But the the one the one basic reason over here is that the base of the goal said, okay, we're taking a step backwards, and then dispute expanded. The other, another option is, is that the, uh, the Gomorrah Sota t- tells us that it was because um, the words that it uses is Mishirabu Mekable Matonos. No, that's not the right one over here. Mishirabu Zechuche Halev Rabu Makhlaikas. When the boastful hearts proliferated, that's when dispute increased. Mishirabu Talmide Shamai Vihilel Shaloi Shimshu called Tarchon. Rabu Machlokos by Israel, when the students weren't doing the necessary shimush, they weren't listening properly 100%, that's when Machlokos developed at the times of Hillel and Shammah, which was the end of the Zugos, which is when the Sanhedrin was disappearing. That was the end of the second base of the Migdash. So students, there, that's when, meaning to say, it was an infidelity in the, in the intellectual progress of the students, which, which led to Machlokos, because there was no longer, so to speak, this willingness to work together was limited. It's interesting because isn't that interesting that the last time the mission in Abbas says that it was a Maglai Kishlesham Shammai was Hillel and Shammai, not Talmidei Hillel and Shammai. What the mission is essentially doing is putting a limit on when Maglai Kishlesham Shammai ended. That's essentially what the mission is trying to say. Just based on this Gemara. Third possibility is, is it could it be in Naksuri, like you mentioned last week, is once they wrote down the Torah Shabbat Shabbat Peh, that's when there was a great amount of Maglai because once you write down, you lose. You sacrifice so much. Yes, there's a great amount of sacrifice necessary when you write down because there's going to be misinterpretation. There's going to be differences of, or differences of perspective just by the fact you write it down. And finally, in the introduction of, uh, of Rav Levin to Rav Shirira Gain, he, argue, he argues that um, there, it is because of mistakes which crept in, um, because of tradition, because of what was happening in exile. At this critical moment in exile, there was a lot of problems happening and people without, them, so to speak, mistakes in tradition happened to the point that there was dispute as to what was going on. So various different reasons as to why we start seeing this, the, this, the, the problems emerging, not problems, but is in general proliferating. It is worthwhile, yeah? Doesn't it answer Yossi's question? To a certain degree, yeah, but it, it, well, I would like to think there's more than that, which we'll come back to. Because you're right, we could, we could relegate it to that. But that, it's interesting to note that in general, since the time of the Sanhedrin Agadol, there seems to be a pr- there seems to be a pattern in Jewish history, which is a, prat- a, a, a pattern which that I would call consolidation and expansion of Torah thought. What does that mean? 
There's moments in time where individuals or, 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 or groups of individuals got together and said, we need to consolidate all the dis dispute and division and write down a corpus of material which will be for all of Israel. So who's the first one who did that? That, 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 that is a watershed moment. Rabbi Yudah Abinasi was the, the, the author of the Mishnah. Um, who, who said, essentially says we need all of these disputes ha being had across different countries now as we're about to go into further exile to be cl uh, closed. Who's the next, the next watershed moment of, so to speak, consolidation after expansion? Ravin and Rav Ashi, around the, 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 the year 500 where they're closing the Gemara, and the closing of the Gemara itself is a fascinating discussion. Read Rabbi Dr. Bergman's um, doctoral thesis, um, fascinating discussion in general about the closing of the Gemara. Um, and then when was the next real watershed moment of, we will call it, consolidation of lots of dispute? The Rambam. The Rambam in Mishnah Torah writes, and listen to his language in Source 10. He says, in Source 10, There are so many persecutions. Remember, the Rambam fled as a teenager from, a, uh, from Spain under, at that point in time, a, a, a very uh, fanatic fundamentalist Muslim group. Later on, it was going to be the fundamentalist Christians, but at this point, it was the fundamentalist Muslims. And he fled to North Africa, then to Israel, and then to Egypt. Right? So he wrote on, under, under the run. He says, at the time, there's so much pressure now. And the wisdom of our sages is actively being lost. All the response and all the leadership of the Geonim, which is a 600-year period from the times of the closing of the Gemara until the time that the Ram is living, about how they led the communities in Babylon, Iraq, and Israel is disappearing. Nobody really understands why his access to them. To study the Gemara, you need a lot of work. It's not so easy. Going to the next paragraph, he says, Because there's no no arti chotzni ani Moshe beribi and Maimon asfaradi. I, I, Rabbi Moshe, the son of Maimon of Spain, I researched all of these books for you. And now put it all together into 14 books into the new halachic system. By the way, he got very highly criticized for doing this because he changed the methodology of teaching. But what he essentially is doing is he was consolidating. Why? What stimulated him to this, to do this, is he felt that things were being lost. The expansion was too far. In Chavila, the falcon can no longer hear the falconer. This is all falling apart, says the Ramam, I'm going to put it together. And again, one more, one more critical time in Jewish history where consolidation happens, and that is... The Shulchan Aruch, where the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah pulled together essentially all of Allah into one place. And of course, it expanded afterwards, the Nosekanim and all the Machlokes and so on and so forth, and expanded outwards. But if you think about Jewish history as a pattern, in a, we'll call it post-Sanhedrin world, essentially the pattern would look like expansion, consolidation, expansion, consolidation, expansion, consolidation. That seems to be it. And what is the stimulating principle? What, what brings about a consolidation moment? It seems to be Takfu Hatsaros' preservation is, is where there seems to be this, this, this drive to create a monolithic idea. Hang on for, for a second. Let's drive this a little further. Okay? So, um, so, so you say, okay. So let's just uh, dig a little bit deeper into Machloika. So historically speaking, this is at least Chazal speaking, why it is that, 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 that this is happening. 
It, um, so you say, well, what, let's, let's sort of hone in on Machlekes itself. Is there anything positive or is it simply a miscommunication of the ages? So I remember when I once read, if not now, when by Primo Levi. Anybody, just anybody had a chance to, to read any of Primo Levi's books? Yes, fantastic, good. Um, so it, I, I find them personally pre, pretty depressing. Um, <laughs> just, uh, you know, he's just very, very, very hard look at reality. And he, he, one of his books, if not now, when, is actually focusing on partisans. And they're, they're in the, the forest and um, this odd group of folks who sort of come together. And one night around the, you know, around the, the absent campfire, um, they, they, they're busy talking about philosophy and they start talking about the Gomorrah, the Talmud. And this is the description of one of them to the other. And I always remember this as such a misguided description of Talmud. So I, I wanted to use it as our foil for, for a moment. So here's the, the description. He says, Pavel interrupted. I'll explain to, uh, what the Talmud is to you with an example. Now listen carefully. Two chimney sweeps fall down in the flue of a chimney. One comes out covered with a suit, the other one comes out clean. Which of the two go, goes to wash himself? Suspecting a trap, Piotr looked around as if seeking help. Then he plucked up the courage and answered, the one who's dirty goes to wash. Wrong, said Pavel. The one who's dirty sees the other man's face and it's clean, so he thinks it's clean too. Instead, the clean one with soot uh, uh, sees the soot on the other one's face, believes he is dirty himself and goes to wash. You understand? I understand. That makes sense. But wait, I haven't finished the example. Now I'll ask you a second question. Two chimney sweeps fall, fall into a second time in the same flue. One, and again, one is dirty and the other one isn't. Who, which one goes to wash. I don't understand. The clean one goes to wash. Wrong, says Pavel mercilessly. When the washed one, after the first wolf, um, the clean man saw, uh, saw that the water in his basin didn't get dirty, and the dirty man realized why the clean man had gone to wash, so this time the dirty man chimney sweep went, uh, went and washed. Piotr listened to this and with the mouth open, half in fright and half in curiosity. And now the third question. The pair falls down the flue a third time. Which of the two goes to wash? For now the dirty one goes to uh, go, will go to wash. Wrong again. Did you ever hear of two men falling down the same flue and one remaining clean and the other one dirty? There, that's what the Talmud is like. Right? <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's sort of this, you know, the, the disconnected, uneducated Jew who had obviously clearly had, you know, one, you know, one bad, bad encounter with, with Talmud in his, in his cheder and then went off to the workforce and is no longer, you know, that's the, sort of that perspective. And they're just all, it's all sense, senselessness. So, like, what, what's really going on when it comes to dispute? So it, 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 it is so much more than, than this, this misguided perspective. And this is the, the perspective you sort of hear this, this, um, this type of language, you hear this type of perspective on dispute all the time when it comes to what we'll call the world outside. That looks in on us. So the Gemara actually describes this and, and relates very, and I say, in a very frank, intellectually honest way to, to argument. Uh, it's based on a pasuk in Koheles. The pasuk is at the very end when Koheles is coming to his crescendo. He says, The sayings of the wise are like goads. And we're not going to focus on that part right now, maybe next week. Like nails fixing in prodding, in prodding sticks given um, by one shepherd. People in gatherings by, um, which were given by one shepherd. So the, the Gemara says the following. It asks the, 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 it says the following observation in Chagiga Gimon That the sages or people, and it's, it's, a, it's a meritocracy, everybody can do this. We all get together, we try to study together, try to understand what's going on. And you have different opinions as to what to do in a given situation. So the Gemara asks the question that we all ask, which is, Why am I learning? It's all a dispute, says the Gemara. The pastor concludes they were all given from one shepherd. That all these matters were given. So the dispute, in a certain sense, what the Gemara is saying is, is a contradictory idea. 
which is what? That all the matters of dispute were given from God. You're also coming back to your point. So, but I don't understand. There's two people sitting around a table here. They come up with an opposite conclusion. This one says Tomei, this one says Tahar. You say, how am I supposed to learn Torah? The, 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 the Gemara is saying that really they They come from one, one, one shepherd. But it can't be. God can't, 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 it has to be binary. The action has to be black or white. It can't be, you know, this quantum principle of um, sta- standing um, at the same time um, in, 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 on, two, on two levels. This is what the, this is what the Gemara ultimately says in Eruvim Daf Gimel, is what's called the notion of Elu ve'elu divrei'elokim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God, which is a hard concept to understand. What does that mean? It's surely truth is objective. And if truth is objective, that means to say it's, it's, it's excluding, it's mutually exclusive to other opinions. You don't have the right to a postmodern narrative in the face of truth, right? So, it, 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 and today, everybody has a truth, right? Everybody's entitled to an opinion, right? If you're looking at the news right, right, right now, you, you know, it's equally as plausible, it sounds like, that, you know, that these black Hebrews supplanted the Jews, right? That, that, that's just not true. That's objectively <laughs> incorrect. It's not a narrative. It's not, you don't have that opinion. It doesn't exist. So how, how could it be that the Torah is saying that when you see a dispute, somehow it all comes back to Hashem? This is, the, this is the question. There's obviously something bigger in dispute than simply miscommunications after the post, um, after the post, Migdash post Sanhedrin era. If it's all right, I just want to just, uh, do a little bit of uh, further, further cause just because of the timing. So there are a number of suggestions as to what, what, what this could mean. Um, two, which I think are, are incredibly meaningful. One is, is the Ritva. The Ritva, who is one of the medieval commentators, the, the Rishonim, on the Gemara itself says, Elu Elu Vidira Kim Chaim in source 15. How could it be? <laughs> it's opposites. When Moshe Rabbeinu ascended Har Sinai, So Hashem displayed in every concept 49 perspectives of Heter, 49 perspectives of Isur. And he asked Hashem, so in the complexity of real issues, not monolithic issues, real issues, there are multiple sides in the right, in the, on the right side, multiple sides on the left side, and he gave it to the Chach Mamasora to find and to emphasize and to unpack them. Which means, if you think about what he's essentially saying, it's a very beautiful concept, is that when you have a dispute about a particular given issue, then essentially both sides are actually really reflecting a certain facet of a complex issue. Right, so the, the, famous, the, the famous example that's used for this is, um, it goes back to various different traditions, but it's very helpful in, in, in this, is about four people who, are, you know, who, who, who don't come from Asia or Africa, and they're brought into the room with this new creature called an elephant, but they're blindfolded. And they're, and they're asked to give a description of what this creature is. And the four people walk out this room afterwards and they, you know, give a pat down. And, uh, and the, the first one says, an elephant is clearly like a tree. And the other one says, an elephant is like a brick wall. And the other one says, the elephant is like a rope. And the other one says, the elephant is like a hose pipe. So it says, well, what are, <laughs> do these guys go in the same room? The answer is yes. The one who was holding the leg, the one who was, who was, was patting the stomach, the one who was holding the tail, and the other one who was holding the trunk. So are they wrong? The answer is they're all right, but they're right about different parts of the truth that they're relating to. And that's the same over here, what the Ritva says. At Har Sinai, gave exceptionally complex, multifaceted ideas. And over the time of history, of the course of history, in a real, intellectually honest debate, multiple facets would be expressed. It's important for us to, if we had this idea in politics today, can you imagine? There'd be real discussion. On a lot of the issues that are a policy that we're voting on today, they're not black and white. 
Red or blue, they're, they're complex. They're, there's multiple, you know, you have to have normal to practice, but the issues are complex. It's not so simple that it's always right and always wrong. And that's what's being said over here, is that there was a divine will for us to unpack those. So therefore, in the process of debate is the expression of those separate, uh, separate ideas um, as well. That's what R Rav Cook says in his, in his, his letters. He talks, uh, to, uh, he talks about this expansion of completion which is to be found when people come together um, in, 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 in trying to find this. Another perspective on this, and I think this is a, uh, um, I, I think a very beautiful idea, is, is actually the Torah Tamimah. The Torah Tamimah says it's not about, about this we'll call divine idea being revealed in a, in a complex way. He says that if you look at source 17, he says, Nira Kavana, what does it mean? Nivnezhe kol davara yotzei Hashem eino echad eino barur kolkak, yachol yos shogeg v'to'ah. If you have something which comes simply from one person, then it's not going to be that that person, uh, it's not going to be 100% true. Why? Because you might have a mistake. Ma she'enke endavar yotzei me'asifas chachavim hu chazak ve'etan k'moy natur b'masmerim. Something which has been tried and tested in peer review is much more significant than something which is simply the product of one brilliant individual. And I remember when, when, I, when I had my bar mitzvah, so uh, my bar mitzvah was Parshas Chukas, and so I was trained with my bar mitzvah teacher, of course knew it all over heart. It comes the next year, and guess what? It was Parshas Chukas Balak. And so of course, fearless 14-year-old um, gets up there and says, of course I'll do that. Um, so anyway, so into the first Aliyah of Balak, at a certain point, the Rabbi of Marshall, who was based in South Africa, um, Rabbi Kurtzak, who was, you know, six, six foot uh, something, um, and he gets up and he made an announcement and he says, he says I'm going to be the only one to correct him right now. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's how bad it was. <laughs> Why? Because when you train by yourself, you train your mistakes inward. If you don't have an auditor, you train and you keep repeating and learning your same mistakes. No matter how brilliant you may be, if you don't have an external audit, you're going to learn your mistakes. And that's what the Torah Memor says. Why is Elu Elo is because it allows the ideas to be tried and tested by multiple different and complex minds who will fight, argue, and hammer out until we get to the refined product. Therefore, that's what it is. It's not about each of them having a specific truth as much as it is, is it's the peer tested, the peer review of the whole, the whole experience as well. That's, uh, that is what the Torah Tamimah says. So you say, okay, this all may be very nice in terms of the process of Machlaikas and the development and the necessary development, the humbling development of Halacha, as you described it, but at the end of the day, so what do we do? So in a post-Migdash reality, in a post-Sanhedrin reality, which is almost synonymous, not 100% because of the timing, but in a post-Sanhedrin reality, so what precisely do we do, we, do we do about this? So there are rules, which we'll discuss, God willing, next week in terms of this, but there is an important overarching principle, and with this we'll conclude. And that is, says the Maral in Be'er Hagola, he says in the bottom of, of page um, 6, source 18, where he says, and by the underline, even something is, seems to be completely impure, there must be something in it which is pure as well. It can't be that really agrees. In fact, that's just the nature of it. To the next paragraph, Rak. When you want to know what to do, when it comes to Allah, we have to say that we have to give weight to one opinion over the other opinion. Even if it's a complex matter, so the, the Maral says it may be true. 
that there are multiple facets, but in the end of the day, we need normative practice, and therefore we have to have a way of resolving this. And so therefore, oh, there are what's called klale apsak through the ages, in the times of the Mishnah. It's Rabbi Akiva Mechaviroi, not Mechavirov. Right, there's, there's the rules as to which sages we, we, we go in which direction, and in the Gemara there are the rules, and in the post-Gemara there are rules as to how we resolve disputes. And it goes all the way through how the Shulchanach phrases his Yesh Omrims is a default and then Yesh Omrim, or Yesh Omrim and then a default to Yesh Omrims. There are rules as to what's called Klad Apsak, how, how we get to this. Which means to say that we have to live in this tension of knowing that there could be truth to both opinions, but there has to be one way to act. Right, and there's rules as how to do that. Racha Rabbi Mnahachos was in the times of the Sanhedrin, and there's more complexity when it comes to the post-Sanhedrin rule. Um, Rav Shechter points out, and uh, he has a beautiful article on Elu Ve'elu, where he says that we have to be careful with this, you see, because we aren't the experts all necessarily all the time to know the difference between those, the, those two. Sometimes what we do is we give too much credence, you know. <laughs> Somebody once said, said to me, I, I did research on the internet, and there was a rabbi who looked rabbinic enough, to, uh, to, to have an opinion, and so it seems like it wasn't a problem to do X, so we did it, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's the way I would, I would, uh, you know, um, um, break Yom Tov necessarily myself, um, but, but, um, but, uh, uh, but the, 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 what Rav Shechter points out is that not all opinions necessarily even warranted to be in this space, which means that you don't say, Elu ve'elu l'direlo gimchayim, to things that were voted down and excluded from the Masara, as an example. So Rav Shechter points out here, yeah, um, he says this concept does not always apply in cases. Rashi and Tosas talk about where, let's say, a, a idea is against a predominant uh, idea in the Gemara, or against a Pasuk. That is not an opinion. That opinion becomes voted out, and it, it doesn't exist as an opinion to even be a yesh al malismach opinion as well. Um, in Rav Shechter, in fact, talks about an, exa- an example where um, uh, just this last week, actually, Rav Shechter was in town with Rav Amar at the, at the end of the Smich HaSchavah program, and somebody asked a very pointed question. They said, Rav Shechter, in so many of your Pisca Corona, during Corona, when you gave so much guidance to the community, you relied on a principle which was called Shasa Dachak Kebedievedami, that in a time of, dis- of difficulty, we treat it like a Bedievedami, and you can rely on an opinion you wouldn't usually rely on. But yet, when it came to making Minyanim on porches, do you remember this? There was a time just before this um, Shavuos where it was illegal to have 10 people together, um, but, the, but people saying, well, let's make minyanim on different porches or, or, or properties, right? And Rav Shechter very clearly came out against it. In fact, well, I, I, was, I was there when I, I was involved in bringing the Rabbanim of the, of the community together to, 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 to ask these very complicated questions. And Rav Shechter says, you cannot do that because there's a problem of, of is there a tziruv between different houses and over the streets and the distance between properties here in suburbia. And so he says, but why didn't you rely on the Rashba? The Rashba says, you can, as long as you can see. That's sufficient. You know what Rav Shechter said? He says, because the Rashba was voted out of Halacha. If you read the Rishonim, all of the Rishonim treat the Rashba as neglected on the side of history. So us, as a proletariat, we can, we can search, research and find the Rashba. But the Rav Shechter says that Rashba did not make it into mainstream Halacha as being even a part of the Elu Ve'elu, as part of the Halachic process. But that's why we have to ask somebody who has that capacity to know what makes it and what doesn't make it. And Rochetta wasn't saying this because he was responding to what was happening in Corona. It's because that's the precise way that halacha works. It's really important to know this. And that's why somebody on the outside, probably somebody unschooled perhaps, might miss this, which is why we need to have, have the intellectual honesty to ask this. I'd like to conclude with the, uh, with the following um, uh, teaching and then pa- and, and story. 
And this is the, the, the observation that Rakuk makes. Rakuk quotes the, the, the Pasuk, which is uh, based on the, the, the Gomorrah expands, and Rabbi Lezer says, says, that the sages brings the peace to the world. And you say to yourself, really, peace? They're arguing all the time. Every two minutes, every daf of Gomorrah, they're arguing. That's not really peaceful. That's, that's a lot of dispute. So Rav, so, so Rav Kook says we are, that we're reading the word incorrectly. Shalom doesn't mean to say kumbaya, we're all around the, uh, around the campfire and we're all singing together. He says that shalom means a, a notion of shlemus. <coughs> shlemus means that when you have complex issues, if, you, if it's only monolithic, if it's only monolithic, then there's, there's no way to, to, to arrive at real shlemus. Shlemus is, is when multiple people are giving multiple angles at the same issue, then you come to the more complex and real outcome of what an issue is. Most real values in our life are intention. There's no, there's no such thing as only one right way when it comes to complex issues. And therefore he says, it's not Godol Shalom Banaich, it's Rav Shalom Banaich. When there's multiple perspectives, that's when you arrive at truth. The respect to know, first of all, you have to be qualified to have an opinion. But those who are qualified to have an opinion, when they sit around the table and they render opinions, all those disputing opinions help give us the more holistic perspective of what that is. So Machloek is not just as a, a historical outcome of a miscommunication, but as the, perhaps the process that Hashem allowed us through to try to develop ideas to the, to the greater being. It's, it's worthwhile knowing how far this goes. When the Gera Rebbe started buying land in, the land in, in, in Israel, he saw what was happening in Europe and he felt that it was time to buy in Israel. This is very criticized at the time because you remember the, the, the you know aligning oneself with you know these Zionists and secular Zionists was, was seen so much so that the notorious character burnt an effigy of the Gera Rebbe at the time. So And then when they reported this to the Gera Rebbe, the Gera Rebbe laughed and he says that if they had not burnt an effigy of himself, he would have organized a group to have done it. <laughs> what does he what does he mean? So it comes down to, to and I'll close with this story because we're now out of time. But the, the, the story is about a, a king who has a very precious treasure and he decides that he's going to put it into um, a, a place where it could be impenetrable. So what does he do? He places it in the recesses of one of his, most str his strongest fortresses which happens to be embedded in a deep and dark forest there, um, um, along the side of his kingdom. But he, he gets the best and the finest of all his military and police experts who are going to be manning this. So he takes all the best of all the divisions and he places them on the ramparts of this castle and he has them, he has them uh, um, got it. But it turns out that in this forest, you know, for from time immemorial have been a band of thieves. And these band of thieves are highwaymen who rob anybody who passes through the forest. And they hear about the fact that the king's treasure has been placed in this, in this, uh, in this, in this palace. So what do they do? So that they, they spend a few months just listening. They just do surveillance, so they, they, they see when the change of guards happen. They see who's in charge where, are there any weaknesses, are there any access points. And what happens is that one night under surveillance, they hear from the ramparts that the guards are shouting at each other. It's the, the middle of the night and there's this great argument that's going on. And this one's shouting, this one's accusing, this one's defending and it's turning into, into a ruckus and, and they say, this is it, this is our moment. So the, the thieves uh, 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 take the weakest point that they found, they make access to the castle and as they enter over the ramparts, all the guards swoop down you, um, you in a unified uh, mission and capture them and, and arrest them. And the, 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 the head of the highwayman turns to, the, to, to, his, uh, to his guard as they, he's being pulled off in chains to the chains to the cell and he says, I don't understand, we heard you were arguing. He says, yeah, you're right. We were arguing, but the reason why we were shouting each other, at each other was so not to fall asleep in the dark of night in the middle of the forest. Because it's, a very, very, it's very hard to maintain your place on a post all night with your night vision goggles and look into the forest for the enemy which is never going to really appear very easily. And so we are shouting each other to keep awake. And that's what the Gera Rebbe was really saying. 
The Gero was saying is I'm doing something which seems a bit bold in my time as I need to have a fringe group which is going to be burning my effigy in order to, for me to remain, uh, remain in the fold. And the same thing with Hasidus. Hasidus had so many great values, but it was a very dangerous. A very dangerous. Right, suddenly all kinds of things, you know, Zmanet Tefillah, <laughs> out the window, right? All kinds of things, suddenly everything, everything, you know, new rules. And Ms. Nagdash says, what are you talking about? That's not Judaism, right? <laughs> There's Shulchan Aruch, right? And thank goodness for the Misnagdim who kept the Hasidim in check. And thank goodness for the Hasidim who said, wake up and start thinking and feeling again. And what about the unschooled, the people who are not the academic uh, br brilliant who, and their relationship to Judaism? And every dispute you see throughout history, certainly there's casualties. But the disputes keep us awake to allow us, to allow us to hold together, to band together, to arrive at the truth at the end of history. That is the perspective where, where, with which perhaps we can see it in a more holistic perspective, despite the fact that when we're in the weeds, it becomes harder to, to appreciate. So, Rabbi I know it's the end of a very long hour. Bezra Hashem, next week we're going to get into the realm of authority. How are there dominions of authority? How do we, we, we pass it Thank you so much for your time.